as we continue in our in our new series in the book of Romans here. We're going to be continuing our consideration of, of Paul, Paul as an apostle. Untimely born is, is an aspect that we will consider here in a moment. But we started studying Paul last week. Romans 1.1 says, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, or Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. We learn about where he was from, where he was born, who he received his training from, and finally, and, and really most importantly, I, I believe the difference that, that we really need to try to understand even more so this morning is, is what he understood himself to be when he was born again and, and who others recognized him to be when he was born again, a slave of Jesus Christ. Here in the introduction of Romans, he didn't tell us any of his achievements. He didn't tell us about any of his training, any of his pedigree. They did play an important role in Paul's ministry. Don't don't underestimate the exceptional caliber of Paul. But that stuff was was built into him and trained into him as Saul, as a pagan, as a person who could be argued was was one of the most uh, successful religious men of his decade. He was so well trained under Gamaliel. He was a very very accomplished uh, student and, and zealous servant of God, I don't want you to miss the fact that in his zeal, in actual serving God, in his own mind, because if we asked him, who are you serving, Paul? What is your duty in life, Saul? He would say, I am a servant of God. He was lost. He was not saved. What a vital thing for you and I to realize about religious people. Did he have the wrong name of God? No. Did he have the wrong history of God? No. Did he have a wrong belief in the Messiah? Well, depending on where, what angle you looked at it from, yes and no. He believed the Messiah was coming. He knew that, that God promised a Messiah and a Savior to his people. So, one of the things we can learn as we contemplate on the life of this Saul who was not saved is there is something very, very special that needs to take place in the heart of every saved person to move them from a damned person who knows God, who knows all of the writings of the prophets, who knows all the promises of the Messiah. You can know all that stuff and be lost. It's pretty incredible to think about, isn't it? I think it is. I think it's a really amazing thing about Saul of Tarsus. But this is not a man's letter. This is a letter from the Master, Jesus Christ, through his servant, Saul, who is born again, Paul. This is a letter from this man. And as you and I seek truth, as you and I learn more and more day by day what it means to seek and understand truth, is one of your great duties in this life. Is, is to be a person who is constantly moldable by truth. You remember in the book of Thessalonians, Paul warns the Christians in Thessalonica that it is the ones who would not love the truth 
who are on their way to damnation. Christians are inherently humble and and constantly learning the truth and, and rejecting what is false. What you do know, your knowledge of Christ and the gospel forms who you are, forms the contours and the shape of your faith and your life. What you know is what forms that. It is a knowledge. It is a body of gospel knowledge that makes a Christian what a Christian is. Specific claims about Jesus Christ, specific rejections regarding things that you know are not true about God and about eternal life. Unless you know and truly believe what the apostle and the apostle only tells you, you cannot be saved. Do you realize that it's what people don't and won't know that damns people? I've said many times since I've been here in this church, you don't know what you don't know. Right? None of you know what you don't know. But when the apostle comes and speaks to you, when the apostle proclaims a message that has come By Jesus Christ, you are learning and hearing something that you could not know unless you listened to and believed the speaking and preaching of the Apostle. You'd be like a sheep in a field whose shepherd is trying to preach to the sheep. If I had a herd of sheep, and I never had it when I was a kid, I had two sheep. But I guarantee you, I could talk to those sheep until I was blue in the face and they wouldn't understand one word I said. Why? Sheep don't know English. Sheep don't know human. Right? I'm going to come back to this concept of a sheep here at the end of this message. But I want you to realize the significance of what I'm trying to tell you right now is that the revelation of the gospel is a supernatural revelation. It is not the seeds of religious philosophical thought. It is truth. And if you are not a lover of truth, if you will not pursue a love of the truth that is going to reveal you and expose you to the Savior... And to the claims of the gospel and have them change your thinking first. It always begins in your mind and in your heart. It changes your thinking and then it changes your life. A life changed by truth received and believed is what faith is. Unless that happens to you, you are lost. This is a supernatural revelation to take people out of being lost and into a genuinely defendable hope of eternal life. See, the great premises of the revelation to you in the gospel, premises are building blocks of truth. The great small portions of truth that need to be explained, in particular here in Romans, the premises of gospel that we're going to be pondering on here is that God's wrath is revealed from heaven. We will see that in in weeks to come. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. Now, whichever of you has the very, very best cable program in North America, you can't tune in to a station where you are going to see what has been revealed from heaven. You don't know how to find the channel. I'm getting back to the fact that what has been revealed from heaven in terms of God's wrath is a supernatural revelation. You don't know what it looks like. You do not know what it sounds like unless Christ spoke it. Unless the apostle told it to you. 
God's wrath is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness and ungodliness. That's in verse 18 of chapter 1. God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. These are basic premises of the gospel. Men will not know this unless it is revealed to them by the apostle. And in the gospel, in verse 17, in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. Revelation, revealing the wrath of God. Paul's authority and his knowledge and his trustworthiness is of an estimable importance here. Paul's trustworthiness Paul's authority is of crucial consequence as we think about these simple lines you would read in verse 17 and verse 18 of this epistle. So your attention or your inattention dictates the thoughts of your soul, dictates the eternal state of your soul. From now into the rest of eternity. The mind and the attention we give to these things is of crucial importance. You see, you, as a man or a woman, you cannot possibly comprehend the measure of God's holiness against your unrighteousness or against your ungodliness. You cannot comprehend it. You think too highly of yourself and you think too low of God. This is the nature of being a man or a woman. And this is why it is required, this is why it is necessary for the apostles' revelation to come to you and I. Because we don't know what we don't know. And when the apostles preach to us the words of Christ, It gives you a chance to know and comprehend who God really is and who you really are. Men imagine God's approval for them, don't they? Don't all men think they're going to be fine with God when they die? Men tend to just assume it's all going to be fine when I get to the end. Your nature seems to tell you that. But by God's grace and revelation, he has warned men and he has corrected men by the prophets. Abel, Moses, the prophets spoke in times past to the fathers and in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, And God is warned and corrected by prophetic reason. And what men must know, you guys, what men must know has come by Christ and by the apostles. This is the significance of what we read in the introduction of this letter here. Paul is a slave of Christ called an apostle and separated into the gospel of God. In Matthew 10, 2 is one of the passages where we would read of the calling of the first 12 apostles. The Lord Jesus Christ called 12 men to be his apostles. And we all know that one of the apostles betrayed him. Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus and Judas committed suicide bringing the number of apostles to 11. Early in the book of Acts, the apostles cast lots to determine who would take the place of Judas, replacing him with Matthias. So bringing the number of apostles back to 12 again at that point in time, 
And so from Matthew chapter 10 and then into the book of Acts chapter 1 and 2, is that when Paul became an apostle? No. How do you know Paul became an apostle, Mike? How do we know Paul owns this authority? Well, he actually became an apostle and in his own words, he he expressed it something along the lines of, I was a an apostle born out of time. What's it called when it takes too long for a baby to be born? What's that? Let's say he was supposed to be born today and he's, he comes a week later. What's that called? Overdue. Did they just call it overdue? I thought it had some special word. But Paul... Paul explains his become becoming an apostle in that kind of a way. Look, look how the scripture speaks in Acts 22 about Paul's conversion, being called an apostle. And then we'll look at 1 Corinthians to see how he calls himself. I came into this apostleship late. I was untimely born is what he ended up saying. So what I want to show to you is that Christ called the apostles, including Paul. And I want to show you how the apostles are attested to. I want to show you how the apostles are uniquely identified and and what their unique calling is and was. And so as we look at this passage in Acts 22, beginning in verse 6, it says, Now it... It happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I think we read a little bit of this last week, but as you recall, Saul got letters from the authorities in Jerusalem. You remember what his letters were for? He was going to go and arrest anybody from the way Christians in Damascus. He was going to go get them and arrest them. He hated them because they were opposed to his God. So verse 7 says, And I fell to the ground when this great light from heaven shone around me, and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. You know, the end of verse 9 there is a great opportunity for witnesses to step forth a year or ten years later and say Paul was a liar. Paul never saw no great light. Paul never heard no voice. At the end of verse 9, if if those people knew he was a liar, they would have come forward. They would have written about it. They would have spoken about it. They never did. These witnesses who saw and heard this never complained, never denounced Paul's telling of this here by Luke. Verse 10 So I said, he answers back, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. He is called, he is commanded. Verse 11, and since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. And then he said, listen, read, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one. Remember in the book of Samuel, it says the prophets used to be called seers because they saw the revelations given to them of the Lord. 
He has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be the witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Paul was Saul. And he is given the prophet's call here. He is a prophet. And he will be told what to say. He will be a witness of what he has seen and what he has heard. Verse 16. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul is called here on the road to Damascus, the ascended Christ has been gone from the Christian church in Jerusalem for eight or nine years, probably. So Paul's being visited by the Lord Jesus Christ is almost ten years after the ascension of Christ. So when we read this here, 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, Paul is explaining some of the essential claims of the gospel here. And right in the middle of the passage, Paul says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also. In the previous verses, Paul was explaining how many people had seen the risen Christ. How well known and how well attested was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Paul's testimony up to this point, it's massively attested to. Up to 500 people at one time. And then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of time. In other words, his personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ came late in time compared to the rest of the apostles. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But he is an apostle. He is called an apostle. He is called late in time. So his personal testimony is that he himself had been a witness to the risen Christ. He himself had received this calling from the risen Lord Jesus and told that he would be a witness of the things he would see and the things he would hear. Acts 14, 14, Luke also calls Paul an apostle. Paul's own testimony, his own conversion is that he knew he had been called an apostle. Luke calls him an apostle in Acts 14, 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out. In other words, as, as Luke is retelling this, this particular story involving Barnabas and Paul, it was just common knowledge to Luke, as it was to everybody else, that, that Paul was among the apostles. If you look at Acts 2.43, if you look at Acts 2.43, there is such a thing as signs of an apostle. In other words, the office of apostleship was so crucial both to the early church and to you and I that God gave the apostles very unique uh, verification of their authority of apostles. Acts 2.43 Fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. See, very early in the history of the church we're told here by Luke that it was the apostles who had these unique powers, these unique giftings that weren't common among all Christians. They were common among the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12.12 12, it's another similar passage. 
2 Corinthians 12, and then verse 12. Paul was consistently persuading the Corinthian Christians that they were obligated to give special heed to his teaching and to his exhortations because there were false teachers and false apostles misleading these Christians. And so he would often remind them and teach them of his unique authority as an apostle. So 2 Corinthians 12, 12 said, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So you see, the, the New Testament seal and attestation of an apostle's office were these signs, were, were his ability to work special works, supernatural works. It wasn't common to Christians in general. It was common to the apostles. And just for reference, if you're taking notes, Acts 3, 6-7 is a, a passage that you're, you're familiar with because we would sing a song to this at times. Silver and gold have I none. Peter, looking at the man who asked for alms, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Peter the Apostle gives the gift of healed legs in this person. So these wonders and mighty deeds and these signs are wrought by the apostles. In Acts chapter 5, verses 15 and 16 is one other example of these unique signs of the apostles. They brought the sick out into the streets and it says that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. In other words, somebody who couldn't walk, somebody who had some sickness or ailment, they would, they would position themselves in the street of Jerusalem that the shadow of the apostle Peter might come on them at a time when he walked by during the day and they might be healed just by touching the shadow of Peter. Such were some of the signs and wonders that marked the true apostles. Galatians 1.12 and Ephesians 3.1-5. We'll look at the reference in Ephesians 3 here. Among other places, we would read that the apostles' message, when, when the apostles proclaim the message they are bringing to those who are listening to their preaching, the apostles consistently claim that their message is directly from God. They don't speak or teach a word of their own invention. So Ephesians 3, 1-5, he writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation or the office of grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. That is, the things that Paul is going to proclaim and to teach had been given to him uniquely by revelation from God. That's what he's explaining to the Christians in emphasis. He made known to me by the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. What Paul knows 
and what Paul preaches had been revealed to him as it had been to the prophets in other times, as in the ancient times, as in Isaiah, as in Jeremiah, as in Daniel. Paul's message is a prophetic, supernatural revelation given to men by the hands of the apostles. And how can you tell a true apostle from a false apostle? How do you know if some men would rise up in that day and say, I am also an apostle. Let me tell you what God has to say. How would they know? Well, were they performing the signs of the apostles? Did they know Jesus personally? Had they met him? Paul had met him personally. Paul was also a worker of the supernatural works of the apostles. And so the testimony gets thicker and stronger as we work through these passages in the New Testament as to the apostolic reality and the apostolic authority of Paul. So that reference there in Ephesians 3, 1 to 5 is a, is a very important reference because it ties his authority even back to the authority of the prophets of the Old Testament. Jude one seventeen is another example of how the New Testament teaches you and I what kind of attention a person pays to the apostle. Jude, verse 17. It's funny when we say Jude 1, 17, isn't it? What if I told you to turn to Jude 2, 17? Jude 17, but beloved, remember the words. But beloved, remember the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the words, Jude, the great Teacher warning and teaching the church how to know falseness, how to stay in the light of Christ, how to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you do it? Remember the words spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you know. Stick to the words that were taught to you by the apostles. 1 Corinthians 14. We go into too many references for you today. You guys got to get fast. First Corinthians 14. Paul is making an argument to these Christians about who they should listen to and who they should not listen to. First Corinthians 14, verse 37. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. What does that mean? If there's anybody who is teaching anything to you and among you, he has to admit one thing at the very least. Why would Paul say they have to acknowledge I teach the commandments of the Lord? He's an apostle. If they know anything about me, they have to admit that I teach the commandments of the Lord. Paul is not a counselor. Paul is not one of the pastor teachers mentioned in the list of Gifts in Ephesians 4, for example, he is an apostle. He speaks and he writes the commandments of God. Finally, in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, Speaking about what Christ Jesus had done for the church, the head of the church has done and has given certain things to the church. In Ephesians 4.11, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles. And you know the rest of the list. Gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Christ gave the apostles to the church in the same way that the prophets were given to the Old Testament faithful. Finally, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and then we'll go back to Romans 1. 
Second Peter chapter three. I'm going to read two verses one and two. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. In both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. And then what does it say? And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord. The apostles have no equal in terms of who a Christian listens to to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ. What verse is it? That is 2 Peter 3, 2, or 1 and 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. As you and I take in the breadth, the breadth and the depth of what we know about the apostles from these few references, it's important that you keep these references and these concepts in your mind. The apostles are, are utterly unique in terms of the attention you give in your heart and your mind. They are attested to by signs given to them by God. They are bringing the commands and the revelation of God. And so Paul called an apostle in Romans 1. It's like Moses being called. Or it's like Jeremiah being called. Or Isaiah being called. It says he's called to be an apostle here in verse 1 and separated to the gospel of God. The word separated or separated under the gospel is like the word horizon. The, the Greek word sounds just like the word horizon. And the words horizon is, is this same concept. When, when you look at the horizon, the horizon is a line. The line of the horizon separates usually the sky from everything else you can see. The horizon is sometimes the sky and, and maybe the sea. Or as you look around, there's, there, there, there's a line that you can watch with your eyes that separates one massive expanse from another huge expanse. And as Paul introduces himself here, he tells you where he is in his location. His circle, his horizon separates two worlds and he is in the circle of the gospel of God. He says, I have been horizoned into the gospel of God. This is where I'm at. I'm an apostle separated unto. I am designated unto the gospel of God. So we read a few minutes ago out of Acts 22 as he described what he heard the Lord Jesus speaking to him. Acts 22:14. he recalled what he had heard the Lord Jesus say, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. He is separated to the gospel of God. You know the word gospel means good news. He's separated unto the good news of God. He's designated for the good news of God. And in some ways, I think the phrase good news is a little bit soft, as in the good news may be easy for you to be dull to just because it's called good news instead of the most amazing news. In our worldliness, 
in our worldliness, there, there are things that you and I think are good. And, and, and we like certain things. We will be drawn to certain things in our day or in our week. And so good news could be your team won in a sporting event. Or good news could be that your political party seems to be getting the upper hand in the, in the debate or in the precursor to the election. That, that, that might be good news to you. But God's gospel, that is the good news of God, I, I may preach a whole message on next week, but it is the announcement of peace by the Son. The gospel is an announcement of peace by the Son, Jesus Christ. You remember Psalm 2 we referred to a week or two ago? Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Now there's a lot of gospel concepts in that passage. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Did you know there's anger in the gospel? Did you know there is wrath in the gospel? Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Is there death? In the gospel, is a perishing in the gospel? You perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. The gospel includes the offer of escape from God's wrath. Paul, called an apostle, separated under the gospel of God pronouncing the message of escape from God's wrath by appeasement in the Son. So God's gospel is prophetically revealing wrath from heaven. It really does begin this way, revealing wrath from heaven and revealing how men might escape the wrath of God. Paul is horizoned. He is separated unto this, this gospel. He is converted and called to God and called an apostle. And the gospel begins with the bad news. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. You see this idea of revelation from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against, he says, ungodliness and unrighteousness. How do men know what ungodliness is unless God himself were to tell them? The prophet Paul, that we call an apostle, preaches a supernaturally revealed message to a supernaturally called and and gifted and empowered men that men would flee God's wrath and they would grab a hold of and take hold of God's righteousness for eternal life. And he must persuade you and you must be persuaded that your only hope for righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You must be compelled to believe and to understand that your own righteousness is nothing before God. Your own righteousness will never earn you an ounce of favor or merit before God. The gospel message that Paul proclaims could never ever be conceived by men. Because most men in our age picture God who's pleased and forgiving of all of men's missteps. Mistakes, we call them. We love to speak of our mistakes instead of repenting from our sins. Men seem to imagine that their occasional mistakes and their unintended outbursts are forgivable because overall, they're better than most. When men preach to themselves their own favorite gospel, they basically give themselves comfort saying, I'm better than most. This is the gospel of humanism. They believe that God will be as understanding of our mistakes 
as we are of our mistakes. Because we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We love ourselves and we forgive ourselves because psychology has told us that's what we need to do. And if all you need is the forgiveness of yourself, then it was not necessary that God took on flesh and went to the cross. If all you need is to learn how to forgive yourself and to love yourself, then there is no need of the cross. There is no need of the righteousness of Christ. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. In other words, what is the law of God saying? All men are guilty before God. This is the revelation of God to men. All men are guilty before God. The slave of Jesus Christ, he puts down the prophetic word here. He's designated as an emissary of God's message, set apart as a messenger of God's message, ordained is what the apostle is, as a messenger, explaining God's gospel litigation. You know what litigation is? It's to argue law. God litigates against mankind their guilt before him. This is what the gospel message is, is your guilt before God. The reality of judgment at the end of your life is the gospel proclamation. This is the bad news of the gospel, of course. But Paul articulates this. He explains this to men. That God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the scary verdict of God is that no men meet his requirement of perfection. The litigation that comes against all men is that no men will stand against the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God. Man is utterly helpless to help himself. And so by the prophet and by the eyes of the prophet and by the persuasion of the prophet Paul, men, you men and women, you my friends, get the chance to look at your own soul in the light of the truth of the gospel. You get to look at God in the light of the truth of the gospel. You can see what is otherwise impossible to see and to know. What is the holiness of God? What is the certainty of the judgment of God at the end of the age? Who stands before God in the judgment and who does not stand before God in the judgment? Picture a sheep standing on the island of Krakatoa and smoke smoldering out of the mouth of the volcano on Krakatoa. Do you guys know what Krakatoa is? When Krakatoa blew, they heard it a thousand miles away. It was such a massive explosion of that volcano. The destruction of Krakatoa is off the charts in terms of what was destroyed, what was lost. It's a relatively modern, exploding Volcano. Picture a sheep standing there looking at the smoke in the weeks before Krakatoa blows. And the prophet Mike's, Mike comes up to the sheep and says, Sheep, this thing's going to blow and you're going to die. You need to flee from the destruction that is to come. Now, can that sheep understand me? It cannot. You cannot understand the warnings of God in the gospel unless you hear the prophet explain them to you. You are 
dull and deaf to the warnings of God until the prophet brings to you the message of warning from God. You're like a sheep looking at the smoke coming up from Krakatoa, getting ready to destroy the place that you think is home. And the gospel message comes to you and I by the Apostle Paul. It also comes by the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter. But in this book of Romans, this message of reconciliation comes to you because wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and against unrighteousness. And unless the prophet tells you what is ungodliness, what is unrighteousness, you will surely paint yourself in the most beautiful light. You will give yourself a pass. You will imagine for yourself a kind, glowing, yellow, golden God who favors everybody and rejects nobody. But the prophet will tell you who God is. He tells you what the message is. He tells you what repentance is. He tells you the futility of seeking approval to God by your own deeds, by your own definitions. And he tells you to seek peace with the Creator, seek peace with the Judge by the blood of His Son, the faith of Abraham. By the time we get to Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're talking about faith. Now, the the properly understood faith, the properly exercised faith in the Messiah, as Abraham believed God, faith is credited to the one who believes in God's offering as righteousness. This is such a crucial book in the Bible. Such a crucial reality that you will not and cannot imagine what the day of judgment entails until you listen to the prophet, until you hear him explain how to escape the wrath that is to come. And he prepares you to meet that day with hope and joy if you would know the Son. Put your hope in the Son. Do you have hope and joy? And that the Son took the wrath so that you wouldn't have to? Do you have that hope? Do you have that joy? You might want to take some time and and read some more from this great prophet that the Lord Jesus designated unto himself. You might want to spend some time reading and thinking with him this afternoon. Close with me in prayer. Almighty God, how we we marvel to contemplate the, the greatness of what it means that you have given a revelation to the prophets in times past. In these last days, Christ himself, by the apostles, told us to flee the wrath. Oh Lord God, how we praise you for the life of the Son and the shed blood of the Son. Oh Lord, I pray you give belief and confidence to your people today, Lord. Draw the lost ones to yourself, Lord. May you give them the privilege of, of fear as they see the smoke the soon to erupt judgment. Help us to properly fear, properly hope in you, Lord. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.